This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, hello. It's me. Good, thank you. Thank you. Well, okay, everything so far, everything's good. My, uh, my mic works. That's a good start. If you weren't here last week, we probably need to review just a little bit. Even if you were here last week, we may need to review a little bit because we're, this is part two of one of our sessions in uh, finding those open doors that God has set before us. And last week, Pastor Mike shared with us some of the thoughts about why we might avoid open doors. You would think that we'd embrace them and just want to go through them, charge through them for the challenge that he presents. It's not always the case. And so uh, we talked a little bit last week about what some of those reasons might be. So as we get ready to review and look at the Jonah Complex Part 2, would you just uh, join me in prayer for a moment? Thank you, Lord, for your word and for um, what you teach us. Thank you for Christian friends that we can share such times with and we can be challenged together. We were reminded yesterday at our men's breakfast that uh, sometimes it may be faster to go alone and do it ourselves. But in the long run, we make more progress over the long haul if we go with others who have that same passion. That's what we want to do here at Crossroads. So help to open up your word to us. Encourage us to go through those doors that you've set before us, even the hard ones. Lord, I do pray for uh, Pastor Mike and Cindy as they're celebrating the installation of a, another pastor out in Lancaster this morning, that they would have a really blessed time there, catching up with old friends and, and rejoicing in the work that you're doing out there at Harvest Church. Lord, strengthen us in this hour, and may we go out of here different than we came in, in a good way. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here are some of the reasons that we talked about that we might run away from open doors. So just to review quickly, here's some of them. Uh, first of all, fear of the unknown can keep us from those doors or can chase us away from those doors. Got to watch out, fear of the unknown. And in um, Jonah's case, it may well have been that he just was afraid to go to a place like Nineveh. That was a rough place to go. Uh, they were uh, people that the Bible describes as evil, but they were... Uh, vicious in a lot of ways. So maybe he was just afraid to go. Uh, we used to uh, serve in, in an urban ministry years ago in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, Camden, yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually grew up in Camden, so did Denise. And back then it was just kind of your average middle class uh, little community. But over the years, like a lot of cities, it kind of went downhill. And it was a scary place to be. And a lot of churches, frankly, found reasons to be on the outskirts of town or be out in the suburbs because it was just scary to be there and there was a sense of fear. Not that the people still didn't need the gospel, but maybe somebody else would do it, so we feared. Uh, also, if you have other options, it may be easy to kind of get out of the, some of the challenges that, you, that you're presented with if, if you have other legitimate options. Jonah did it, apparently. He had the money, the resources to buy a ticket and go to a place called Tarshish. So just the fact that we have other options sometimes keeps us from embracing the challenges and the callings that the Lord is giving us. Or blindness, as we called it last week, just, um, just oblivious to the things that are set before us and those open doors that are there, the things that are right in front of our noses, and we just don't see them. I don't know why that happens. 
Maybe we don't want to see them, or maybe we just don't. But there were things going on in his life. He had a whole boat full of Gentiles, unbelievers, who needed to hear about his great God. But he was reluctant to, to see that and to do something about it. So sometimes just blindness is one of the things that gets in our way. Well, you've been evaluating those probably through the week and kind of thinking about if any of those impact you or they're keeping you from going through doors. But I want to add four more for us to think about this morning. So I gave you that note sheet. You can kind of keep track. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, we're going to be back in the book of Jonah. It's that little book tucked away um, in, right in the middle of the Minor Prophets near the end of the Old Testament. But I will be putting relevant passages up here on the screen. The next reason is I think there's a sense of sometimes um, guilt or uh, maybe we can call it inadequacy. And that keeps us from going through doors. You may remember Abraham of old, um, I'm sorry, Moses, was challenged to take the people out of Egypt and towards the promised land. And he said, oh, and Lord, not me. I, I don't know how to lead. I don't know how to speak. Uh, I'm not a good public speaker. And the Lord dealt with all of those objections that he had. But he had a reluctance to go because he felt inadequate. Or maybe it was guilt. I'm not sure what it was in Jonah's case, but at some point, he just seems to give up. Somebody told me that sociologists talk about uh, the principle of regrets and how regrets work. Uh, I've had a few, probably you have too. And the, the, the psychologists and sociologists tell me that short-term regrets are about things that we've done that we think maybe we probably shouldn't have done. You've had that mostly in your younger years. A lot of times you have those. You, you do something, you live recklessly or carelessly and do something foolish, and you have regrets because you wish you hadn't done it. But now that I'm getting older, um, I realize, as some of you do, that on the long term, we often regret not the things that we did, but the things we didn't do. Boy, I wish you, know, you could be back in your 30s and do that again, or you could have taken that challenge. Or I believe the Lord was calling me to do this, and I just didn't pick up on that. I don't know if some of that's going through Jonah or not. He may well be regretting some of these things. He had an opportunity to serve God in, a, admittedly, a hard place, Nineveh. But he had an opportunity to serve there, and he didn't pursue it. And maybe he's feeling guilty about that, uh, that call that went unanswered in his life. So what he decides is that um, this is all his fault. Here's how he says it to the guys on the boat. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? So he says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm, because I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So he's just come to the conclusion this is all his fault. He's, uh, he's uh, a failure. He knows now that God is trying to get his attention, and he believes this is all part of God's punishment. He said, you shouldn't get tied up with me in this. Just throw me overboard. God doesn't want to punish you. He just, he's, he's after me. So throw me overboard. Once you're rid of me, everything will be all right. Here's the ironic part. When Abraham was first called to follow God, 
and be the father of his people in the new land. God gave him this promise in Genesis 12 that God would bless him and make him a blessing. And here Jonah's in a tough spot because Jonah realizes now that instead of being a blessing, he has become a curse. So you're better off without me. Just throw me overboard. I don't know if you've ever been at that point where you just feel that you've been a failure. You failed God and you just want to give up on it and let things go. By the way, for the sake of your notes, you already got guilty and inadequate. But the others are, his life is falling apart. The whole plan is falling apart. Jonah's ready to give up. And that's where he is. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there a couple times in my life where I just felt, oh, what's the use? I just want to give up. And that's where he is. He just wants to give up. I don't think he knows about what's, what's awaiting him once he gets into the ocean. He's just going to give up. So he says, throw me overboard. I'm inadequate. I'm a failure. Get rid of me. God will calm things down. And sure enough, he does. And I guess unbeknownst to Jonah, this gives God now the opportunity to work and do some things both with Jonah and with the guys on the ship. So he's going to work with both of them now. Here's what he does there. First of all, chapter 1 is really action-packed, but most of the action focuses on Jonah. He gets a call from God that he promptly rejects and refuses. So instead, he runs away. He makes his plans. Uh, he exercises his options. He gets on a boat, and he's going places. So it's all about Jonah. Things change, though, at the very end of chapter 1 because, and then the final action in Jonah's life is, he's thrown overboard. But now God has room to work, now that Jonah is kind of set aside for now, and God works in a marvelous way to work with the guys that are still on the boat. Well, you can't see that red. Can you see some of the words are in red? It's, okay, okay, because it's not as bright as I thought it would be. But here's what happens now that Jonah is kind of set aside for the moment. This is kind of a little bit of an aside from the story of Jonah. But here's what's going on while Jonah's in the sea. The men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. And they cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing this innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this the men greatly feared God, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So here's, let me see if you can remember what Pastor Mike said about this, because he made a point of this word that sometimes shows up in your Bible, L-O-R-D, with all caps. Remember? Where, you know, there's a, it's like a large capital L and then smaller capital O-R-D. Is that how it is in your Bible? Do you remember what Pastor Mike said about that? That's why I highlighted them. That's the name. We, we call it Yahweh now. That's kind of how they pronounce it. It's the name by which God made himself known to his people. See, before this, they were worshiping all kinds of other gods. They were praying to their gods, stop the storm. But now, all of a sudden, they're talking to and dealing with Israel's God. 
So anytime you see that in your Bible, L-O-R-D, all capitals like that, that means they're talking to Israel's God, not just their gods. And they're in a place now, now that they have seen what Jonah is going through and understand the punishment that is on him and that once he's out of the way, they're safe, all of a sudden they want to turn to God. And there's this wonderful revival on the ship to the point where they make sacrifices and make vows. They devote themselves to Jonah's God, to the God of Israel. They make sacrifices to him. I'm not sure what they sacrifice. That's one of the questions I have as I read through. I'm not sure what they sacrifice. If they had any animals on board to start with, we already know that a little while ago they threw all the cargo overboard. So I don't know what they, maybe there was some animals left they could sacrifice. So it's the best they knew how, without a lot of background in the Jewish religion, they sacrificed to God as an act of worship. And they made vows to him. They promised their lives from here forward to the God of Israel. So there's this wonderful revival. These pagan sailors come to faith in Christ. Unfortunately for Jonah, it happens without him. He had the opportunity to be part of what God was going to do on the ship. But because he's still willful and not willing to give in to God and his discipline, God does it without him. There have been times in my life where that's happened, incidentally, maybe in your life too, where you felt that God was calling you to do something and you wouldn't do it. You resisted for whatever the reason, however you justified or rationalized to yourself. But God somehow got his will accomplished anyway without you. And really without anybody else except the demonstration of his great power. God changes the lives completely of these former unbelieving sailors. They are now, well, we would call them Christians today. They're, they're now children of God back in that Old Testament frame of reference. They're now worshiping the God that Jonah once followed. Don't know if Jonah knows about this revival. Probably not. It sounds like he heard them praying. Next thing he knows, he's in the water, in the stormy water, and this happens on the boat. And I don't know if they know, ever know what happens to Jonah, what becomes of him. So they're kind of, their story is separate at this point. But God does a wonderful thing, saving people, even without Jonah. Another reason I think we sometimes run from these open doors or don't find them is because of the problem of prayerlessness. <coughs> prayerlessness often means that we miss some of the open doors that are there. When we don't pray, we're not in touch with God. And I don't know how you do it, but when I pray... It's often connected with my reading of his word. So I read his word, some portion of it, bigger or smaller, depending on the day. And then, and then I pray to him. And part of what I'm praying is I'm kind of praying back to him, talking about what it was that I saw in his word today, and then also praying about some of the other struggles of life. And often, through his word, he prompts me to do something that day, and I have to talk with him in prayer about what it is I think he's calling me to do. Jonah apparently didn't do that. We don't hear about Jonah praying in chapter 1. He just did what he wanted to do. So prayerlessness was one of the things that kind of caused him to miss that open door to Nineveh that the Lord had given him. 
But finally, God brings them to the point of prayer. They threw Jonah overboard, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. Now, you might say, well, he should have been praying before this. He should, it shouldn't have taken this to cause him to pray. Because I, I know, I've gotten to know you people over the last few months, and I know that you're people who are always praying about things, and you never wait until it's just a last resort. You never wait until you're in trouble to pray, right? You always are praying proactively. I see that in your lives, yeah, yeah. But sometimes I'm like Jonah, and I don't think to pray until I'm in trouble. Well, that's clearly the case here. He hadn't thought much about prayer, as far as we know, before this, but all of a sudden, he's a man of prayer now inside the fish. This is a, I don't know how this miracle worked. This is a miracle at so many levels. So if you're good at figuring out these miracles, then we need to talk. Because I'm not exactly sure how all this happened. He's inside a fish for three days and three nights. Um, and God makes sure the fish is there. He kind of commissions him. God provided it. So that means God made sure the fish, however big he was, was in the right place at the right time. The Lord apparently gave him some instructions, like now, listen, you're going to meet this guy, swallow, don't chew, I don't know, you know, whatever. <laughs> However, God gave him these instructions. But so he's in this fish, and he survives in a fish for three days and three nights. I, I don't know how that works. Some of you are fishermen, maybe you can tell me that you know about a fish where a man could survive inside of him and come out alive. I don't know, it's a miracle from start to finish, as far as I can tell. So here is Jonah inside this fish. And now he's going to pray. Up until now, Jonah's life has been one downhill track, if you think about it. From the call to go to Nineveh, he goes in the opposite direction. I was even checking on a map where Tarshish is, and nobody's exactly sure, but they think it's a, a, a town in what we would now call southern Spain. So it's all the way, and Joppa, of course, is on the coast of, um, uh, of Palestine. So that's like as far away in the Mediterranean Sea as you could go in a boat. So he was going as far away as he could. But he went down to Joppa. He gets on the boat and he goes down to the bottom of the boat. Then he goes down into the sea. Then he goes into the fish and down to the bottom. In fact, he says, I feel like I'm at the bottom of the sea inside this fish. So this has been a downhill track for Jonah. Sometimes it's happened in your life, or it's just one thing after another, and you're just going downhill. Finally, when he gets to the, when he bottoms out, he thinks about praying. So my recommendation is pray before this happens. But you don't know. Sometimes it's even hard to see when you're being disobedient, isn't it? Do you always know when you're being disobedient, when you're being rebellious? Because you, you kind of fool yourself and rationalize it to yourself, and you're even... Convinced yourself that you're not doing anything wrong. And God takes you down, down, down. And finally you get to the bottom. You couldn't go any lower. And now you think, I better pray if I'm going to get out of this. So it's better to pray all through your life. But even if you don't, when you get to the bottom, that's the time to start praying. That's where Jonah is. So prayerlessness probably got him into this. So he begins to offer up prayer to God. In his prayer, he covers a couple different things. Um, 
By the way, on your notes, you should have filled in that there's something fishy about Jonah's story. It's, uh, it's a cheap joke, but it was there. As he's praying, he says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. You hurled me into the deep, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good, because salvation comes from the Lord. First of all, he prays for God's help. He says, my life is a mess. Here I am inside this fish. Uh, my, life is, my life could not go any lower. Nothing bad could happen beyond this that I can see. So I just pray for your help. Deliver me. Then he acknowledges his disobedience. He acknowledges his rebellion. He acknowledges his hard heart. And then he says, let me, let me think through God's plan again. Let me, let me see if I can capture this. You want me to go to Gentiles who cling to their idols and tell them about you. That's a hard thing for me to do, but if that's, if that's what you mean to do, if salvation is what you mean to be doing, then I'm finally with you. I'm on the same page now. So he, he, I think he reassesses God's call and says, essentially, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to like it, but I'm ready to go through that open door now that you prepared for me. So he's all ready to go. And then the way he's going to get out, because he's in, inside a fish, wherever that fish is in the Mediterranean, I don't know. But now he's got to get out of the fish. So three days and three nights later, uh, it says that the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. Now, I don't know how, I don't know how you want to, I mean, we have a great welcoming and, and uh, greeting ministry here at the crossroads. And when you come in, you got a couple people at least shaking your hand and giving you hugs. And I hope, that, hope you feel special because we want you to feel special that way. We see celebrities and stars. They always want to come in uh, on a red carpet. And they have all kinds of special demands for what should be in their dressing rooms and all that. So we like to come in uh, and really make a, a big splash. Well, Jonah makes a splash, but not in a good way. In fact, even in his prayer, he's, I, I'm just all covered with seaweed and everything. And who else knows what's inside that fish? I don't know. And he's just vomited up. You would think there'd be a better word that the Bible translators could have used, but there isn't. This is what he vomited up. You've seen your share of vomit. So have I. You know, I've, I've, got, I've got four kids and nine grandkids. I've seen vomit. The fish just vomits him up onto the land. Not especially auspicious re-entrance onto the scene. But later on, as Jewish people read this story and reminded themselves of what happened, um, especially then after Jesus' resurrection and burial, Christians began to identify with the story. And I am told that down in the catacombs, in the second and third century, uh, it was common, at least in Rome and some other places, to tunnel underground and have these caverns underground where burials could be done. And there'd be, and there'd be coffins and things in, uh, under the ground in these uh, sort of caves or carved out caverns. And there's often be writing on the wall, different expressions of faith. And um, at least when Christians buried, 
they're dead in a catacomb. Some of the things on the walls would talk about um, the Old Testament and things that would encourage them. So there, in the catacombs, there are drawings, for example, of uh, Daniel in the lion's den, because that's a great story of deliverance. Or in a related way, remember Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego who were in the fiery furnace and got out. There are pictures of that on the wall. But the one that most often shows up, I am told, is little crude pictures of the big fish vomiting out Jonah. Now I go, okay, I, I get Daniel, I get the three men in the uh, fiery furnace, I, I get all kinds of other Old Testament illustrations that would be encouraging, but why would you want to have on the wall next to your grave a picture of a fish vomiting up Jonah? We have a really old cemetery back at Montgomery. If any of you haven't strolled it yet, you will. And there's all kinds of different expressions and sayings and that sort of thing. I checked again yesterday, and there's none of them on there that have a picture of a vomiting fish. So it's not something we feel. So why were they so fascinated by, the, by a vomiting fish that you'd put that next to your coffin? Well, it's because Jesus made this comment. Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus one day and they said, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign for you. Now prove you are who you really say you are. Prove that you're worth following. So they said, and he said, none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus says, what, what you learn from the miracle of Jonah is that God can bring somebody back from the dead. Now, in, in the case of Jonah, everybody just thought he was dead, but he gets vomited up on the land and we go, oh, you're a mess, but you're alive. Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights, and he is gloriously delivered from that and walks out of that tomb on what we now celebrate as Easter morning. So because of that reason, because of that connection Jesus makes with Jonah and his own resurrection... The early Christians said, we're going to put a little symbol of a vomiting fish next to my tomb because I believe that just as Jesus was raised, just as Jonah was delivered from the fish, so one day, so will I. So prayerlessness turns into prayerfulness, by the way. The thing that happens next is, to me, maybe the most exciting thing in the story. Here's how chapter 3 opens up. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't that cool? How many of you thank God for second chances? I mean, I know I do. Huh? Did you deserve that second chance? No. But God is good and God is gracious that way, isn't he? I mean, if it had been you or me, if we had been in charge of this salvation episode, I would have just let Jonah, I would have fired Jonah, laid him off or something, and found another prophet that would have done what I wanted to do. But it appears that God is just as concerned about what happens to Jonah and the, and the training and disciplining of his life as he is about the unbelievers on the ship and the unbelievers in Nineveh. He wants to reach them too, but he wants to do it with Jonah. So he comes to him a second time. You've talked to me in your prayer. You're ready now. You want to talk about salvation. You're ready to go to those horrible Gentiles that cling to their idols. You're ready to do that. Okay, I'm going to give you a second chance. 
Let's see how this goes. I, I just love that God does that. As, as I hear some of your testimonies and your times of sharing, I know that some of you have that real sense that God has given you a second chance. That that's what right now is about. That your life was a mess. You felt like a failure. God gave you a second chance. And now life is different because of that. And now that you're following Jesus, things look different. So I just love that at the end of this story, God's going to give him a second chance. Now we got two other things that I, get that I think we almost have to discuss together. Two other issues that Jonah still needs to deal with. Why, won't, why does he have trouble going through this door? He's ready to go through the door. He's ready to go to Nineveh. But sometimes it's a lack of love that keeps us from saying yes to open doors. He's got this second chance, but now he's still dealing with some attitudes here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go, go to that great city, Nineveh, and proclaim to it the message that I give you. And so Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh, and he proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That's uh, some message. <laughs> That's... I was reading some Bible teachers uh, this week that wonder if Jonah tried to make the message unappealing. Did he deliberately leave out some of the uh, words about grace and forgiveness and mercy? Did he take just a little bit too much delight going through Nineveh, people that he didn't like anyway, they were the enemy of Israel, proclaiming their destruction? Did he take it on himself to deliberately make the message sound as bad as it could? And I don't know, because here's all I know is God gave him a second chance and said, you go tell the people the message that I give you. And this is what Jonah told them. So I think this is exactly what God told Jonah to tell Nineveh. You go, why would, God, why would God speak so harshly? Why would he speak so severely? And then I thought, you know, these people are in a mess. They're on the brink of judgment. And God just wants to bring them up short and say, look, things are really bad. Your ways are really wicked. There's really no nice way to tell you that destruction's coming. I mean, if, if, if my granddaughter is going to put her finger in the socket, I don't say, now, now, honey, if you do that, we can rush you to the hospital, and Poppy will be there to sit with you. The nurses will be very nice. And you, no, I say, don't do that. Stop. We give them warning, unadorned with niceties. There are people in your family that are going through hard times, and in your mind, you can kind of see that destruction may lie ahead. Really bad things might happen for them, and uh, at some point, yeah, I believe you'll talk about forgiveness and mercy, but at first, you tell them, don't do that. Please don't do that. So God sends Jonah to bring them up short and say, don't do that. And here's what happens. There's no nice way to say it. But amazingly, the Ninevites believe. They declared a fast, all of them from the least to the greatest. They put on sackcloth, which is um, kind of like um, torn clothes that you wear to indicate your sorrow for sin. 
And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. It's an amazing thing. Later on, God tells us that there were 120,000 people and they all have a conversion moment and their city and their lives are spared. Now, I got to give you a little background on Nineveh. You probably, many of you probably know where Nineveh is. There's actually not currently a city called Nineveh, although just adjacent to where ancient Nineveh used to be, there's now a city called Mosul. It's in Iraq. The Ninevites are Iraqis, you know, before it was Iraq. They were the enemy of Israel. They were vicious people. But now they have repented and experienced salvation. Incidentally, just to show you how loving God is, right now, today, as we are meeting here, there is an emergency field hospital complex on what is called the Plain of Nineveh. It's, it's a, a plain area just to the north and east of Mosul. And Samaritan's Purse, a Christian relief organization, uh, is there with doctors and nurses helping to bind up the civilians that are being wounded in the battle that's now raging between the rebel forces and the Iraqi army. So Christians, God has put Christians there in the plain of Nineveh, where all this happened all these years ago, because God still loves the people of Nineveh, or Mosul. But... Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What's up with that? God just saved 120,000 people through your message. I'd feel pretty good about that, wouldn't you? Yay! Some of you would go, yay, God! You'd be cheering and clapping and hooting because God did this. But now you've got to bring back what Jonah's thinking. I don't like these people. I don't want God to show mercy to people that I don't like. Imagine there's a news story. We go home and there's a news story on CNN. It says, uh, Ku Klux Klan leaders have just announced that they have repented of their hateful ways and they have come to Christ. We go, oh, really? They didn't deserve that. I don't know if I'm happy about that. You go back to your class reunion, whichever one it is. 10th, 15th, 20th, whatever it is. And, and, and the class bully is now a Christian. You hated him. He was always doing mean things to you. But now he's a Christian, and you've got to embrace him as a brother. Would you rejoice? Because Jonah's not rejoicing over what happened to them. Denise and I were talking about this recently, and she was asking me if there's anybody I felt that way about. And I had to really think hard and, and there is. There's a person in my life that has deeply hurt somebody that I love. And some days the only thing that I can grab hold of is the knowledge that one day God will punish him. And if he walked into the room this morning, came up and knelt down, I don't know how I'd feel. I'd struggle with that. I really would. That's a terrible thing to admit, isn't it? I'm sorry. But I'd have, I'd have trouble with that. Would I be able to rejoice? Or would I feel like, 
Would I be displeased like Jonah? I'm not sure. I'm still working that through. I guess that's where I need to be more in prayer. Maybe there's people like that that you feel that way because you won't go through that door because you don't like them. Maybe it's your neighbor. He's been mean to you since you moved in. He's just a pain in your neck. And you don't want, you're not going to invite him to church. God's prompting you, but you're not going to invite him to church. I don't want him to get saved. I want him to move. That's all I want. <laughs> and maybe you're having trouble doing what God called you to do because you just don't love those people. Can I share with you just quickly a couple of stories uh, from the New Testament? These are stories that Jesus told. The, the one, incidentally, is found in Matthew 20. The other is found in Luke 15. The story in Matthew 20 is interesting. It's about a landowner. Kingdom of Heaven is like a landowner. He wants people to work in his field, so he hires some guys at the beginning of the day to work in his field. He said, I'll give you a day's wages, which back then was called a denarius. I'll give you a day's wages. Three hours into the day, he goes out and there's still some, he finds some people that still aren't working and he calls them to come in and I'll give you a day's pay if you come in and work for me. He does that again in the sixth hour and in the ninth hour. He's always looking for people who don't have anything to do and aren't working in a meaningful way because he knows these people need to provide for their families. It's a 12-hour day back then, so in the 11th hour, he goes out, and there's still people standing around doing nothing, and he says, look, how about if you fellas come work for me, you work for me, I feel at the end of the day, I'll pay you a day's pay. That sounds like everybody ought to be happy with that, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's time to get paid. Everybody gets their day's pay. They've got their needs met. They can go home to their wives, to their families, and say, good news, uh, a nice guy invited me for a day's work, and now we can have food on the table. Everything's great. The other story is from Luke chapter 15. It's the story of uh, two sons and a father, sometimes called the, pro the story of the prodigal son. That may be how you know it. And the younger son is tired of staying around the house and putting up with all dad's rules. So he says, give me what's coming to me. Give me the part of the inheritance that's mine. I know I really shouldn't get it till after you're dead, but I don't want to wait that long. Give me my portion which was a third, his brother gets, older brother gets a double portion. And he goes out and he wastes it all on riotous, careless, reckless living. And he finally comes to the bottom of himself, just like Jonah did, and he thinks about it. He says, let me just go back to my father. Maybe he'll take me back. And so hope against hope, he goes back to his dad. And much to his surprise, his father embraces him, puts new clothes on him, and has a party for him. Good news. But here's what happened as the story goes on. In the first story of the landowner, the guys who started work early and, and on, the, on the second shift began to grumble against the landowner. And in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. Let me try to tie these together because I think the seventh reason, I guess, if you're keeping track, that we avoid open doors is sometimes we have a wrong view of God and what he's doing. Listen as uh, God explains himself to Jonah. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And then Jonah says, oh, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? 
This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. This is why I didn't want to go through the door. Because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. When I was going through Nineveh, I was being obedient, but in my heart, I didn't love them, and I thought you were going to punish them even then. That's why I went up on the hill and sat under that little shelter up on the hill waiting to see what you would do, because I was still hoping that you would punish them. And when they repented and experienced your salvation, my heart sank, because I wasn't on the same page with you, really. I, I had a feeling you might do this. That's the kind of God you are. You're loving. You're compassionate. I had a feeling you might forgive him. And that just killed me to think that. By the way, I just want to compare it quickly. What Jonah said just then was actually quoting from what the Lord said about himself to Moses many years before. This is what the Lord said to Moses. He came down in the cloud and passed in front of Moses and said, The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Notice when Jonah quoted it. Can I go back? When Jonah quoted it, he left out the word faithfulness, or maybe some of your Bibles say truth. He said, I know that you're a God slow to anger and abounding in love. What God really says, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. But Jonah says, I felt that your faithfulness would mean you would punish them. And when you didn't punish them, that made me sad. That made me angry because that's what they deserved. So he didn't love them. And he didn't understand how much God did love them. That's why in those stories that Jesus told, that's how he kind of rounds things up. He says, I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want? Or are you angry with me because I'm generous? I gave you what I promised. You have a day's wages to go home and take care of your family. They needed that too, and even though they came in late, they still get what they needed because that's what a gracious God does. To the older son, he says, you are always with me. You've always had everything that I've had, but we can celebrate now. This brother of yours has come back. He was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. Why won't you celebrate with me? Why won't you embrace it? I wonder if maybe it's because in this having the wrong view of God, it's not just that I don't love those other people that he's called me to reach. Maybe it's that I don't really love God like I should. Maybe if I can't embrace his mercy and his sense of love and compassion, then maybe I really don't understand him. Maybe I, maybe I really need to get to know him better as well as my neighbor or that person in my family that drives me nuts. Because it seems like people matter to God. All kinds of people. Depressed people, educated people, uneducated people, divorced people, people with different political views than yours, conservative people, liberal people, 
whatever the other groups are. People with different skin colors, young people, old people, people from different cultures than ours, people from different religious backgrounds. He loves them all. And we may have categories of people. And there's certain people we won't talk to or don't feel that we should reach out to. But God doesn't see it that way. He wants us to go and reach them all. People really matter to him. And sometimes the doors that he opens are opportunities for us to go in and share his grace. Just by the, not only by the things that we say, but by the things that we do. So what is it in your life that's keeping you from going through a door that you believe God is calling you to do? On the back of your little note sheet, I kind of put a circle. It's, a, and you, it's up to you to make a pie chart out of that. I know some of you hated graphs and pie charts in school. So you'll skip that one. But if, if you gather it, try to figure out of the seven things we talked about, there's something you right now that you believe God has called you to do, a door he's calling you, inviting you to come through, and you're not sure if you want to. You're holding back. So try to figure out which is the, probably it's many of the seven. What's the big wedge? What's the, is it fear or is it lack of love? I just don't care about those people. Is it that... You don't feel that you're on the same page with God and you have a wrong view of him and what he's about doing. In Luke 18, there's this uh, picture of a Pharisee. And he's going up to the temple to pray. And at the same time, there's also a fellow who is a tax collector. Nobody liked tax collectors back then. Even less than we like them now. Because basically they were sort of traitors um, and cheats. But he's praying. He's asking to be forgiven by God. He's pounding against his chest. He won't even look to heaven because he feels he's unworthy. And here's the Pharisee off in another corner. And the Pharisee's raising his hands to heaven, looking up to heaven. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Or tax collectors. That's the heart that Jonah had. That's the heart that God wants to keep us from. That, that notion that we're somehow different than those other people he's called us to reach. Because God doesn't have the same hang-ups that we do about these people. He wants us to reach them all. S- some of these categories who you were before you came to Christ. Or still are. And we'd love you anyway. What makes you want to run away? What fears do you need to confront in your life? Have you prayed about the challenge that God's put before you? And if not, why not? Why don't you like the people on the other side of that door where you have to go? And, and what if you're really avoiding God? What if he's on the other side of that door to walk with you into the challenge? What if you're really just avoiding him? What if you don't understand what his purposes are? And once you figure that out, what will you do about that now? Because the next move is yours. Maybe it's, maybe it's going to that neighbor that really bugs you, but you know you just need to go to them and talk with them and be nice to them. Um, I, I know you lent them a lawnmower last year, and they haven't given it back yet. But when you go over, don't even talk about that. You know, invite them over for dinner. Invite them to church. Get to know them. 
Maybe it's somebody in your family you've made promises to, and you know you should have kept them, to your kids, your grandkids, and you've been avoiding that, but you need to keep your word. Um, maybe you need a heart adjustment about some ex, ex-friend, ex-whatever. Maybe God's calling you through that door to change your attitude about those people. And, and we, you've been avoiding that door for as long as you can remember. Figure out what it is, pray about it, and then ask God, what can I do this week to go through that door? Whatever it is that God has called you to do, we're better off doing it. And I, I say that because I avoid doors just like you do. But God is calling us to go through a door, and we've been putting it off. Figure out why. Because his greatest blessings are on the other side of that door. And if you've been bailing out for too long, and maybe he's dealing with you severely, then here's the good news, like with Jonah. He's ready to give you a second chance. So embrace that second chance and go through that door. By the way, next week we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, I guess in our final session or nearly on going through the doors, why is it there are some doors that just don't seem to open? We've been talking about why we avoid the doors that God is opening but we're afraid to go through. But what about some of those other doors, doors you want to go through, doors you've been praying about going through? What about them? Why does God have closed doors? And what do we do about it? How do we respond? Let me pray for you now as, we, as you consider what it is that you need to be doing about that door in front of you. First of all, Lord, I thank you for being a gracious and loving God. We know that it's your inclination to be compassionate. We know that you're faithful. I know that in your proper time and in your way, you will judge uh, wickedness and evil. But for now, you give to us the blessed opportunity for forgiveness and newness of life, and we can share that message with others. I admit, Lord, there's some people that we're not as excited about sharing with as others. We want, we want the nice people to come here to Crossroads. Lord, help us to see that you don't make those kinds of distinctions. There are needy people, people that have uh, hurt others or that have even destroyed their own lives that need you. And we need to be good about that, inviting them to come and being excited when they come through that door. Lord, help us also uh, to be prayerful about this. Not to be distracted by other things. Not even to rationalize that if I do this good work, you'll let me off the hook on this other door. Help me to be honest and face those open doors and go through them with your strength by your grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.